Hi, you're listening to The Greatest Discovery. This is Mary Wiseman, Cadet Tilly, and Captain Kelly. Captain! Captain! Welcome to The Greatest Discovery, a Star Trek Discovery recap podcast from the makers of The Greatest Generation, the best Star Trek podcast. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm the best Adam Pranica. I saw somebody that had found The Greatest Generation via The Greatest Discovery. Really? Yeah. I never even thought of this as as like having a potential upside for our other show, but... That is the last thing I thought of. (laughs) That's encouraging. Yeah. They said they really liked it. Oh, good. Hopefully they didn't start with the episode that came out today. Yeah, which As is a, uh, which is like us shooting each other with super soakers full of tequila. <laughs> yeah, uh, not a great not a great uh, onboarding episode for an uninitiated viewer. You know, uh, president of Maximum Fun Jesse Thorne always gets asked this question: Which episode should I start with of a, of a podcast that has hundreds of back episodes? And his answer is always. The most recent one, and uh, I tend to agree. I uh, I think that that's true, but for our shows, I think that they benefit from the kind of the pileup of jokes that occurs over time. So I, I say start at the beginning. Describing our humor uh, using car crash vernacular is, yeah. is totally appropriate in this case, I think. <laughs> Indeed, Adam. Well, Ben, what did you think of what did you think when you turned on last night's Star Trek Discovery and saw that it was thirty eight minutes long? Oh man, I did not uh, even register that it was shorter than normal when I when I turned it on. I don't know why I'm so sensitive to run times before I watch things, but I think it might be that the version of the CBS app that my TV has does not show that unless you like click into the pause oh really uh yeah just to note um what version of the app are you using how are you watching the show i'm watching it on a playstation 4 using the cbs all access app i uh recently acquired a 4k television that has google android for television Mm -hmm. software which is a garbage uh, software, <laughs> in my estimation, but uh, I am lazy, and so I don't turn on the PlayStation. But I also, I don't know. There's like once you get into the programs, they're fine. Like the Netflix app is fine, and the Amazon Video app is fine, and I really like them also because those companies are now streaming some 4K and HDR content, which is something I really wish they had made disco available in like they're clearly taking a ton of care to shoot discovery beautifully and it seems like a shame that it's this brand new show for you know 2017 and 2018 and it's not on the highest spec uh standard available yeah it seems like we're in uh we're in the middle of a technological leap in television and yeah 
televisions are not willing to commit all the way yet. Yeah, well, I mean, I think uh, CBS would have made a a better case for all access than um, if if this had been a a 4K HDR television show. Yeah, you know what? That's a great point because a lot of... Like, if you make the case that what you're presenting on your subscription network is better than what you could get on TV, yeah. then I think a lot of people wouldn't have a problem with paying for it. I think it's it's the equivalent of it that a lot of viewers have a hard time with. It really is. And I think that the proof is in the cultural pudding. You know, like, I think there are people that are, you know, pot committed on Star Trek fandom, signed up for this thing and and watched the show and... I am like carefully avoiding all of their hot takes on Twitter after an episode airs. Right. But like this is not Game of Thrones, you know? Like normals are not watching this. <laughs> and that is I think a big a big bummer cuz it's a great show. It's a bummer because the show is so great. It's also a bummer because the performances are so good. Like, Mary Wiseman should be a big star after this if she goes on to other things. Indeed. If if this show is on HBO and getting a Game of Thrones-like reception, we, that the Game of Thrones-like reception that it really deserves, I think we would have 10 times as many listeners, and uh, that would just be great for our other podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, using this show as the gateway drug. Yeah. Well, do you want to get into the app, Adam? Yeah, it's time to do that with our remaining 38 minutes. Ben, let's talk about Star Trek Discovery Season 1, Episode 12, Vaulting Ambition. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? No, it's a Klingon. What the hell is going on on this ship? Shit. I haven't the slightest idea. We start the ep, Ben, with sort of a proto-previa shot. Yeah, the uh, I think that one thing that has not really been discussed about the Mirror Universe is that shuttle travel is actually super safe in the Mirror Universe. <laughs> what a relief. Yeah, it's uh, it's kind of the opposite of what we're used to. You can go to Pacifica, no problem. <laughs> Must be why uh, Burnham and Lorca are so chill inside. They don't even put on the seatbelts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she just puts it in autopilot and goes back and has a wrap with, with the cap. And um, he's given her a big vote of confidence. Like, this is the most dangerous thing that they've done yet. Like, they are going to, they're going to the heart of darkness, the imperial palace of the mirror universe Terran Empire. And uh, Lorca's like, you got this. I know that, uh, I know that this is a big risk, but I trust you. I, I trust you completely. The idea of going behind enemy lines is a thing we've seen in in myriad action films, in in so many science fiction films, even. Yeah. Uh, the difference in this scene is that you rarely get the motivational speech from one party to the next. <laughs> you know, you'll get yeah. you'll get the uh, the preparatory montage, but but you don't often get the you're going to make it. It's going to be okay. Like, just don't worry about it. It's a little bit of a, like a James Bond and Q scene also. She gives yeah. him a an injection that's going to help him with the agonizer booths. Um, she They go over uh, 
an iPhone that has a bunch of information that they got from the USS Defiant, which was the other Prime Universe ship that slipped into the MU. And uh, it's heavily redacted, but they're getting a sense of like what type of information they're looking for. And Lorca's like, well, you know, like this is another great reason for us to go where we're going, because if they've got the information anywhere, it's the Imperial Palace. I, I got to believe that Burnham at one point up front was like, well, if it's all redacted, why are we even going? Like, this is a good reason <laughs> to turn back, right? <laughs> I don't like being in these previews in the first place, man. <laughs> Burnham has had to maintain her brave face for so long. She's starting to she's starting to have that scowl of someone who belongs in this universe. To the degree that she almost looks harder than Lorca at this point, you know? Right. Lorca appears to sort of softened, even facially, for a guy who's been in an agonizer booth for days and days. He actually like his kindness that he pays to to Burnham is uh not unnoticed. Yeah, he's he's uh, he's building her up. He's he is the the positive affirmative captain that he has not been at all so far this season. And uh, for reasons that we'll see later, like uh, he always has been this way with Michael specifically. The big reveal at the end of this is that Lorca has been an MU the entire time, uh, which which is a really nice. Like they've they've really done a nice job of laying little little breadcrumbs to flash back to uh, along the way, you know, like like why to get Michael Burnham out of jail would Lorca have killed the captain of the shuttle that was taking her to prison? <laughs> like I remember that first scene where she's in the back of the shuttle and the and there's like little goobers eating the outside of the uh, of the shuttle and the captain has to put on like an environment suit and go out there to clean them off and then just gets blown away <laughs> like that was uh that was insane and now it kind of makes sense but uh he's only ever been kind and accommodating to Michael Burnham everybody else gets gets asshole lurka so right. it's interesting to like think about this character in that in that context it really like has colored uh, his performance. I think. I think. I, I. I wonder. I wonder how they handled the rollout of this information to the actor. Like, did he? Did he get to, like let in on the secret early on? Like, uh, you know, like Mark Hamill getting whispered the the Darth Vader secret in his trailer right before going and performing the the final lightsaber fight in Empire. You hear only occasionally about actors taking roles as as centerpiece characters in, in giant franchises where they don't know what's going to happen at the end of the film. I don't feel like this is the case. And I'm not saying that because I know any inside information, but I got to believe that anyone who accepts a role on this show has to know what the story is of their character before taking that role. In Jason Isaacs's case... Uh, like he is a popular film actor and I don't think he takes a TV role like this unless he's sure that it's going to be a good one. You're always taking a risk being in a thing as an actor because you have so little control over how it comes out. Yeah. So his character, um, I think has been, has been well played and has been really interesting to watch, uh, in this, in this series. And, uh, 
this this is the episode that um definitely gives credence to your idea that he might be a one season guy yeah that that definitely feels like a cement that's being hardened as we watch your choice yo is dead just a ghost uh, while Burnham and Lorca are headed to the Charon, uh, we see a Stamets inside the spore chamber. I sort of had assumed that he had died at the end of the last episode. Oh, that he was in spore heaven? <laughs> yeah. And uh, and what, we're, what we come to find out in this scene is that uh, Tilly has restarted the spore therapy on Stamets while, while Saru and her talk things out. And it looks like he's merely in a coma. Well, he breathed a little bit at the end of the last episode, right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, anytime you get doctors in a room with paddles and uh, and you get a crying main character, yeah. that's not a good look, right? The twitchy leg. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so he spends a lot of this episode wandering around a kind of, like, moody blue imagined, imagined version of the disco with... Mirror Stamets, who is a bit of a jerk and definitely trying to like trying to like guide guide him and and uh and, and control like what they're up to. But Mirror Stamets is aware that he is also passed out and he is aboard the ISS Charon, which is the both a spaceship and the uh the Imperial Palace, I guess. Right. And also um, has a little star that's definitely going to blow up in a later episode. <laughs> Isn't it will... fun to have a giant ship that, that contains a massive bomb inside it? <laughs> I will be blown away if they find a way for that not to blow up at some point yeah. in the next few episodes. <laughs> it's like a son of Damocles. Yeah. like, And I'll go even further, Adam. Uh, the the odds on this are a little bit longer, but I think it might be Lando Calrissian that blows it up. Oh, right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's tie all the universes together there. <laughs> yeah. Come on. We've got a... Uh, we're, uh, we're playing with J.J. Abrams' money. Let's do it. This relationship between uh, Mirror Stamets and Stamets Prime is super interesting to me because uh, Stamets Prime doesn't fully comprehend the idea of the mirror universe right so before he goes into his coma he understands that there are there's a multi-dimensionality to the universe right and he has and he shows an interest in going to there but he goes into a coma during the last jump and so when they reappear in the mirror universe he's not aware of that moment right and so for for mirror statements to say i'm you in my universe Stamets Prime is only understanding that this is a version of him and not necessarily an evil version. I think that's critical in judging all of Stamets Prime's actions while he's in this space. Like, because if he had known, I think he'd be far more reticent to pal around with this individual <laughs> uh, in this space. Yeah, it takes a while. I mean, there's... The other thing that's revealed here is that the there is something wrong with the mycelial network and there's like red creeping tentacles coming down a hallway at them and uh like passed out stamets yells the enemy is here when when that happens like we cut back to reality and that's what he's shouting so 
there's a lot wrong. This is also a scene that like I like this whole B plot, I feel like like I understood what was going on less and less as it progressed. Like it starts with kind of a like they're in the spore forest and then they're in the ship and then they're like using the computer and I'm like, so what computer is that? Is it just like is are they accessing something external to themselves or is it like the imagined computer of a solipsistic dream? Like, how does it work? This question made me interpret the idea of the, of the mycelial network as being a lot like that ribbon from Star Trek Generations, right? Mm. In that it contains... The nexus. Yeah, and that it contains everything. Like, and later on... I feel like we're going to end up really jumping around the story of this episode to to sort of support our theories as we go. <laughs> but when but when Culber says, well, all you got to do to get out of here is close your eyes and imagine yourself in a place, and then he's there, that kind of bears out the, the idea of a usable computer in this space, too. Like, if you concentrate on a computer being real, it then becomes real. Yeah. If you, uh, if you imagine the Stay Puffed Marshmallow Man, it becomes real. Right. <laughs> choice is made. Whoa, oh, oh, whoa. There's something about seeing Mirror Universe Stamets like with the with the doctor pin. Yeah. While also wearing a like a rubber half suit. <laughs> that creeps me out, man. It's like the way butchers wear rubber smocks when they're like butchering animals. It's not a like there's some foreshadowing there, right? Yeah. He's not a good guy. Dungeon statements. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does he know he's in a catatonic state? How does the, the, the one... I mean, is is it just that he's been there long enough that he's, like, puzzled it out? Uh, by he, are you referring to prime or mirror statements? Uh, kinky dungeon statements. <laughs> I don't know that there's much that he says that, that we can believe, TBH. Like he says that he's that his counterpart is also comatose uh, on the Charon, you know, in the Charon lab. Mm-hmm. But I don't, I don't know whether I buy that. Well, he wakes up in the in the Charon, right? Yeah, but that's Prime Stamets waking up on the Charon. No, Prime Stamets wakes up on the on the disco. I uh, we have totally different interpretations of that end scene, dude. We see both of them wake up, Adam. I know. You think this is another Katra switch em up? I'm not sure if I would put it that way, but yeah, I think I think they're in different spots. Hmm. I think one went to one home and one went to the other. It's the edit that that makes it like. Here's the thing: if you're right, then that was a bad edit. And if I'm right, then then it's the it's the same sort of sleight of hand this show has has shown throughout this season one. Yeah, this show has not made that many slip ups in that category. So maybe you're right, Adam. Hmm. You really have me questioning myself, though. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm looking out into the water and I'm seeing like a tsunami of email and and tweets coming my way and i'm just like i'm gonna turn my back to the ocean now ben i'm gonna let it take me <laughs> yeah i uh i, I don't want to discourage people from uh, being in touch with us but uh all theories and stuff are like really something that i think we're both trying to avoid because 
Uh, we're trying to have our own, you know, like our own subjective take on this show is like kind of the idea of this podcast. So there's a purity to just you and I talking about our own theories without mm-hmm. without them being affected by the outside world. Mostly, we just want to watch this show and make this old house references and stuff. <laughs> For someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? You've encountered them. Those Klingons? So on the Charon, uh, Michael Burnham is being paraded through the ballroom to, like, accept an award for turning in Lorca at this point. And there's a, there's a, there's a grand ballroom and a bunch of people doing their Nazi salute. And there's a reveal of Georgiou. Like, I love, like, in the world of this moment, Georgiou is facing the wall like waiting for her introduction to conclude and then they uh and then they like an auto show uh spinning table like they they yeah. turn her around to the crowd well here's my theory as why this episode is a little short adam is they cut the rehearsal scene uh, that reveals that Giorgio is a member of sparkle motion mm, yeah <laughs> There's something about being evil that grants you uh, a lot of theatrics uh, when you're introduced to large groups of people. She's standing inside a World Series trophy of, like, brass pipes. <laughs> yeah. And uh, she gives uh, Michael Burnham a chance to pick a Kelpian, any Kelpian. And uh, did you could you tell if one of these was Seru? Did she pick Seru? I rewatched this scene so many times. I think I might be a Kelpian racist because I could yeah. not tell them apart at all. I was positive that the guy on the left was Saru, but then I kept looking at the guy in the middle and I was like, well, that could really be Saru, like just lit a little differently. The guy on the right definitely wasn't Saru. Here's the thing, Ben. If you need to make a choice between three people that look like me and you don't know what you're selecting me for, <laughs> and you're pretty sure one of them is me, you don't choose the one you think is me, right? Right. I think when it's mystery choice, you can't choose the familiar. I was I was thinking about Laurel's loaf in this episode and how I wish she had gotten that scar way earlier in the series because I feel like yeah. there were a couple of episodes where I didn't realize that it was the same character. Yeah, agreed. Or like I thought it might be, but I like couldn't really... I didn't have, like, any tools for recognizing her yet. <laughs> um, eventually, I think the thing that I saw was the uh, the little red tips on her yeah. on her armor, on, on the, like, the spikes on the shoulders. But I don't know. Like, I'm not used to these fucking Klingons yet. And the Kelpians, same deal. Like, you got to do something to differentiate them. Just thinking that make you feel better. Well, speaking of uh, Laurel, this is probably a good time to jump over to the C storyline of this short and yet jam-packed episode. Right. Um, our uh, our buddy Ash Tyler is really suffering from uh, from this Voke inside him. Uh, he's like uh, he's like trying to pass a Voke, and the cranberry juice is just not helping. <laughs> <laughs> and. Uh, and so Saru goes down and uh, is kind of trying to get Laurel to to help, and um, she's like, "Not likely, buddy. Once that guy's uh, f- you know fully fully voke, he's gonna he's gonna kick all your asses, and the Klingons are gonna be king." And Saru's like, 
Oh, uh, shoot. I guess nobody told you. <laughs> That's a, a preposterous thing to want right now because we are not in the same universe that uh, you want the Klingons to be king in. And uh, in this universe, Klingons are getting their asses kicked. This is almost an episode one level of passive aggressiveness from Saru. <laughs> like, he brings it, he brings the full power of his passive aggression to bear on her. And he does it a couple of times in this episode to Laurel. Like, yeah. Like, you are so impotent in your cell right now. You have no idea that the war you're fighting doesn't even exist here. Like, and he sort of appeals to the angel of her better nature to the degree <laughs> that there may be one. Right. Which is a lot of faith for Saru to have. I get the sense that Saru as a character is like really bewildered by the the way other aliens think because it's so different from the way he thinks. Saru should also be in a cell right next to Laurel also, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, they should just uh, put a bike lock on his uh, threat ganglia and chain him to the wall. <laughs> yeah, Laurel basically says, uh, tough tits. And I'm not talking about my own. <laughs> um, I I feel like the they're doing something intentionally to kind of obscure the Ash Tyler Voke combo situation. I feel like it's kind of gotten described in a whole bunch of different ways now. Right. Like she says that they like like rebuilt his bit memory and like and like downloaded his 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 thoughts and and then you know, puts Voke's psyche into into his body. And it kind of like, it all seems like it's kind of talking at cross purposes. Like, it is did they just inject Voke's psyche into a human body? Did they like kill Ash Tyler and then like, like stretch his skin over Voke's body? Like, it's, I feel like a little bit of sleight of hand is going on with this in a way that is kind of frustrating at this point because i feel like this has been resolved there is a way to clearly state this that they have not done yet and you're right like if you're not going to state it clearly that would seem to indicate that like the obfuscation is is like there's a purpose to it but the way that laurel describes the process as yeah ash tyler we snapped him up from the battle of the binary stars took an angle grinder to Voke's body, took the psyche out of Ash Tyler, put him into our, uh, into our surgically altered Voke, and then cut him loose uh, on your ship to be found and to do spy shit and to <laughs> fuck shit up. But here's the thing. If you have access to the technology that allows you to move psyches from body to body... You can do this without the angle grinder. You just take Voke's psyche out of his body, put it into Ash Tyler, and save yourself the machinery. Like, there's a much less effortful way to do this, but in every description of what's gone on here, it has always been the opposite. It's been, we're going to grind the rough edges off of Voke. We're going to put Ash Tyler's psyche in him as sort of a, a blanket topper. <laughs> and then when the time is right, I'm going to say the magic prayer... Uh, the blanket's going to get ripped off, and it's going to reveal the Voke within. Do you think it's just, like, OPSEC? Like, she, she doesn't want them to, like, to like turn off Voke, so she is giving them a very confusing explanation of what's going on? What I think 
is that the in the process of taking something from someone else and putting it into another is like the weaker form of that consciousness. And that if there's ever going to be a degradation of consciousness, like it's always going to be the topper, right? Yeah. So if you're going to do the process, the stronger has to be below. The stronger has to be the body. So that if there's a failure in the system, uh, you can get your original consciousness back. That's sort of what I'm, that's my headcanon anyway. It's like, that's, that is the, the fail safe. You can always get Voke back if, if transferring Ash Tyler's psyche fails, but you can't if it's the other way. You know, if you got like two computers and you're like, got some, you know, like a graphics card and a power supply from one and you put it in the other, like which computer is it at this point? It's master slave stuff. Yeah. So I think initially she just, she basically just like tells Saru to go take a hike, but uh, eventually he comes back and uh, we'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> Stay tuned. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? Those are Klingons? What the hell is going on in this ship? I have no idea. What? So let's catch up with Michael Burnham and uh, Emperor Philippa. They're having a nice uh, mother-daughter meal. <laughs> Giorgio nicely offers Michael Burnham the threat ganglia from the Kelpian that they are eating. It's the best part, right? A nice reveal. <laughs> That's what they are, in fact, eating. <laughs> Michael Burnham goes from really liking this meal to really being grossed out. For all the effort she's put in to, you know, like speaking of, of suppressing your your true feelings, like she cannot not gag. This episode has a lot of conspiracy DNA in it. There's the the gagging at the meal scene and there's a, a, a total Remick scene later. Yeah. The conversation at the dinner sets up the idea that Georgiou is the mother figure of Mirror Universe Burnham and that their relationship was far closer, but also like somewhat parallels what it is in the prime universe because i mean michael looked up to prime universe Giorgio as a as not only an authority figure but sort of an adaptive mother as well which is what made the pain of her double cross uh, so much more acute not so long ago it was mother both the the dumbest and most interesting thing about the mirror universe is that like everything is kind of the same yeah you know it's like you know, in an alternate timeline, maybe my dad doesn't get discharged from the army in San Francisco where my mom is and meet her and then I'm born. You know, like, why would everybody, like, have every everybody be the same but also evil in the mirror universe? But somehow it is. Right. I guess that's how quantum universes work, right? Like, uh, like if there's a, an infinite number of them, then there's an infinite number of possible versions but yeah, the uh, the deal is like, I mean, Michael Burnham is like trying to ride for Lorca, trying to get him out of trouble and trying to get the information that they need and get home. But she also is not willing, you know, she she's like kind of playing a character and she's not able to like satisfy this interrogation that she's under about like why she disappeared for as long as she did to go get Lorca. And so uh, Giorgio decides that she is, in fact, a traitor as well and calls in 
one of her little buddies to to take uh, Michael Burnham to get executed in the throne room. When Giorgio discloses that she's aware of Michael Burnham's double crossing and that she's ready to kill her, did that come out of nowhere for you? Or was that just in keeping with the whole backstabby mirror universe on mirror universeness of people in this timeline? I think I interpreted it as, uh, yeah, mirror universe on mirror universe crime. I kind of wanted Michael to fuck up, to earn that. Yeah. You know? Like, she's so perfect throughout. She holds, she never breaks character as long as she's in the mirror universe. And I kind of wanted that to be the reason instead of just her doppelganger getting her in trouble. I think that's fair. I mean, she goes, like, she gets taken into the throne room to to get killed and it's desperate, you know? Like, the, like she has one chip left to play and it is the Captain Philippa Giorgio combadge that she's got in her pocket. And, um, you know, at, at that point, like, oh yeah. Like if, if she'd screwed up this moment, that moment where she reveals that she's really from prime universe would have felt a lot more interesting because it'd be like, well, I screwed up and this is the only way I can get out of this now. And it's a total long shot. Right, and and the two scenes are so similar because in the scene before, she has a dagger to her throat, and then the scene that follows, she has a sword to her throat. Like, right. her death is equally apparent. It's strange that, that it took so long for her to disclose the true nature of her mission. And this is one of those things that we nitpick a lot, Ben, which is, like, the reason that the story is told later instead of earlier is so it can very specifically have the outcome that it does. It makes more sense for cause than it does for character. Right. So Emperor Giorgio takes the com badge and puts it on the royal quantum variance detector. <laughs> and it, uh, you know, like, it dings. Its sole purpose is to do that one thing that maybe it's never done before. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Gotta have one of those in the throne room, right next to where the emperor sits. She's yeah. gonna need it. Trust me. <laughs> and uh, once she sees that the result is positive for difference, uh, she grabs the royal shuriken and kills all but uh, but one of her lackeys and uh, offers him a governorship if uh, if he'll clean up all these dead bodies and keep quiet what he saw here today. Because it turns out she is aware of Prime Universe. Acutely aware. That's probably why she has that machine that's ready to uh, do the, the detection. Yeah. How do you think she rolled that out to like the guys that installed it? Like, <laughs> hey, listen, I'm going to need a quantum variance detector uh, for reasons. I'm going to need this button under my desk that locks the door. People have really got to be wondering what's going on here. This is one scene of death of several in this episode of what I believe to be a fairly gory ep as the season as the season goes on and the deaths depicted on the show are often really gruesome and surprising and horrifying and it made me think that because science fiction should challenge the imagination in every way how almost appropriate it is that it's like this 
Like, yeah. this the scene later on next to the agonizer booth is maybe the goriest death we've seen. And it is so shocking and awful that, uh, you know, in a universe where anything can happen, where any permutation of any death or any type of alien or any look of a ship can happen, I like seeing it. I like how shocked I am at it. This is, I feel like this is how science fiction should be. It should be surprising and challenging. Yeah, we should talk about that scene. So this this captain that we've seen a couple of times from the Mirror Universe, got kind of a, a gap tooth, very handsome gentleman, goes down to like interrogate Lorca. And I guess he's specifically upset because Lorca had a little bit of a fling with this dude's sister. And he wants Lorca to say her name. He's, uh, he's just trying to get Lorca to like admit that he did something bad to this lady i guess did 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 she die it was a little unclear to me but um the 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 dna of damocles that he is hanging over Lorca is some some dna from some we'll come tax and parasite on tonatus seven doesn't mix well with ours understatement of the century <laughs> yeah they bring in one of Lorca's little buddies who's like captain oh my God, I didn't think you were still alive. And like Lorca does a great job of like acting like he does not recognize this dude. And yeah. and like the, the, the way you're supposed to read this scene is Lorca doesn't remember the name of this lady because he comes from another universe and how could he? Uh, and what is revealed is that Lorca is just a really great actor. <laughs> but uh, we get to see this guy get remicked by the uh, the DNA injection, and uh, it's a real mess. It is. It's gremlins in the microwave. <laughs> this guy just fucking pops. You need a good supply of Windex after this scene. I the scene also was like it. It was like the D storyline, right, of the episode, and they, you know, it wasn't like there wasn't like that much to it. So it was funny to me the way they spaced it out. They would like cut away from it and then like come back to it like 10 minutes later after checking in with the A, B, and C storylines. And the guy is still going, say her name, say my sister's name. (laughs) (laughs) Like, man, you are really single-minded. You've been doing this for hours. (laughs) Lorca totally ball shots him. Yeah. They they have a little roll around on the ground. Lorca ball yeah. shots him, and then uh, and then uses the paddles. Yeah, he gets the uh, the defibrillator to the head treatment. This this uh, Mary Universe captain, which uh, you don't want that. <laughs> Lorca's really lucky that he was in the uh, agonizer booth for that for that uh, remicking of his friend. Oof, pretty ugly. What? 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 What's happening? What's all this? I'm trying to save you. What is this? Saru convinces Laurel that uh, that Ash Tyler needs her help, and uh, he does this by showing her an iPad with like a like live video of him in a bio bed with big cat scratches all over his chest, and he's like, he broke out of his restraints. He went to the ship's cat cafe, and they <laughs> didn't like him at all. <laughs> She's like, uh, I don't know what a picture of him all scratched up is going to do for for my reasoning, but I'm I'm holding fast to the idea that I'm not going to help him. And Saru is like, well, uh, 
you've been in solitary confinement for so long. How about we stick you two together and see if that has any effect? So he sight to sight transports Ash into her her room in the brig. Yeah. And uh, it's really devastating to Laurel. I mean, like, in one way, it's kind of cool, like, how woke is Starfleet that they have co-educational prisons? But <laughs> on the other hand, uh, this is this is kind of some masterful psyops on Saru's part. And, uh, and so she agrees. She's like, all right, I'm going to do this, but it has to be by my hand. It's very uh, Mary Magdalene imagery, though, too, like the way that he's beamed into her arms like uh-huh. that. It's very, like, it really looks like that post-crucifixion scene. Yeah, man. Uh, let's uh, like if any if anybody in our audience is uh, is able to do Renaissance painting, uh, love to see that. Laurel <laughs> as Mary Magdalene and and Ash Tyler as <laughs> as Jesus. Brandon Bird could could really pull that off. I think. Oh yeah, I bet he could. Yeah, uh, Ash Tyler has the neck beard of a Jesus type. Sure. Uh, maybe the the one major quibble I have with that character is that all of that neck beard. Oh my god, just just trim off the bottom inch, dude. You would look so much better. He's going for the connection. Well, I don't need to shave because it don't grow in right here and right here. So they beam into Six Bay, and uh, it's like it's the it's the surgery at gunpoint. <laughs> like yeah. all of the security guys are standing around. With uh, with dustbusters and uh, Laurel does a little surgery, Adam. And uh, now, when you're removing a Katra <laughs> from a Starfleet officer, you're gonna want to put on two Nintendo Power Gloves with laser <laughs> fingernail attachments. If you're having a hard time concentrating, <laughs> I find I'll make my cuts more square if I'm held at gunpoint. <laughs> Raising the stakes causes me to focus, which is kind of like finishing a project the night before it's due. <laughs> ben, uh, if you ever go to surgery, it's a really bad sign if your surgeon starts eulogizing you during. <laughs> <laughs> and that's what we get here. Laurel, has uh, got her power gloves on and she's doing brain surgery and... Ash slash Voke is uh, is spazzing out over this. It it seems in- impossible that she would be accurate enough with with finger lasers attached to all of her fingers. <laughs> like I, I I'm barely accurate with the thumb and forefinger on my right hand. Star Trek does a good job so often in explaining at least the bare minimum of how a piece of tech works, mm-hmm. and they really don't do that with the brain surgery device here. Like they make a gesture that doesn't make sense, which is that it shows the like the internal scan, and it's not the straight line of a laser, but more like a lightning bolt inside of his head. That's kind of that's kind of like targeting something. Do you think this was the first version of the clip show device, and <laughs> it just ended up making some fucked up episodes? The yeah. clips don't make any sense. They cut in and out at the wrong time. Yeah, Catherine Pulaski made some. Big improvements on the on on the power glove version. You want a sturdy base for your clip show device, so uh, <laughs> so the lasers go in the right spot. Yeah, and uh, I think the implication at the end of this scene is that Voke, he did, because yeah. she uh, she does the cry out to the dead to let them know a warrior is coming. 
and and Vokes Klingon has given way to English by the time the surgery is over. Like I I would have guessed that Voke would be the like the final boss fight, you know. I'm also wondering if if Voke in his original container shows up because he was not killed during the aerial bombardment of uh of the planet. Like I wonder if we do see him again. Like as OG Voke. It's also like not super definitive <laughs> that she killed him. Like it could be that she just like redormented him. Right. So, yeah, how could you ever trust him again? I mean, if if the idea is that the surgery is successful, I don't think that you return Ash Tyler to duty, right? New. No. Which is another case of I really hope that he's that this isn't his only season because I really really like him as an actor and I think he's an interesting character. I hope I hope he's in it for the long term. Yeah, I mean, I guess if you can return Captain Picard to duty, you can probably return Ash Tyler to duty, but who knows, man. Yeah, they, they used the Ash Tyler rule on post-Lacutus Picard. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then in uh, First Contact, Picard was not willing to extend that rule any further. Ash just needs to roll around crying in a vineyard. He'll be back to normal, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, he's going to really reconnect with his with his brother. Back inside the mycelial network, we get that scene that we uh that we described briefly before of Stamets Prime waking up uh and depending on your interpretation of Prime waking up on the Charon or aboard the Disco. Another reason I feel like uh it's Prime aboard the Charon is because of the camera pan to the ISS Charon computer display like why else would it do that if not to underscore his wrong location because he's so clearly wearing the butcher smock of an ISS employee well his clothes wouldn't have changed <laughs> I know but 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 like what we need if uh if he's in his right place we don't need the pan away like because oh yeah those are the clothes you're supposed to wear there yeah well, I you know your your crazy theory may may bear out, Adam, but I just don't. I'm I'm not buying it yet. A Stamets awakens in two places. One one is aboard the Charon. One is aboard the Disco. And the one aboard the Disco runs into the spore room, and he's like, "They're all dead." Yeah. Have you ever had mushrooms go bad on you in the fridge, Adam? That's a real ugly scene. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. You you just throw away the entire Tupperware, you know. And uh, this is a this is a thing that Star Trek has done forever is it fails to connote the smell. <laughs> the smell of the spore room has got to be awful. Yeah, Tilly should have just been like, oh, yeah. Bleah. yeah. Tilly's great. One of the top characters of all time. Something is going on in that head of his. We just need to let it happen. And then on our uh, our ISS Charon, we've got the. Uh, some of the like final reveals with Giorgio and Michael Burnham. Uh, she Michael Burnham puts together that the Lorca that she has known is the Mirror Universe Lorca because uh, Mirror Universe humans are sensitive to light. Like Giorgio, like opens a window and has the same wince that Lorca has been having. It's almost a shot-for-shot shot montage of of uh, usual suspects, like. <laughs> You and uh, and the part that really tipped me off to this is when uh, Michael Burnham drops her her mug 
there's a few things I'm wondering if we will get resolved about Lorca. Like there's that scene where he wakes up and um, and uh, has like a gun under his pillow and like almost shoots Admiral Bob because she's sharing the bed with him. Is he jumpy like that because he doesn't actually know Admiral Bob? Is um, is the ship that he lost like was this mirror universe Lorca killing an entire ship and then impersonating prime universe Lorca in order to like give himself cover? Whatever it is, I hope they're able to articulate that better than how they've articulated the Voke Ash Tyler surgical procedure. Yeah. Like either the Voke Ash Tyler surgical procedure stuff is is hand waving to distract us from some deeper truth about it, or it's just like they have like been a little unclear in the writer's room about exactly what the mechanics of it are and right. have written a something that is vague because of that. I would love to like compare all of the times that what happened to Ash Tyler has been described just like a, in a supercut and see <laughs> see if they even line up because I feel like they kind of there's like been many self-contradictory statements made. The montage we get serves to prove that Lorca is mirror Lorca in yeah. in in drag. It also discloses Lorca's obsession with Michael Burnham. Yeah, he's revealed to be sort of a Woody Allen type, where yeah. he started as a father figure for Michael Burnham and is now more of a romantic figure. It's unclear if Michael was a willing participant in that relationship, though. Like, because this is Mirror Universe, it's it's hard to tell. Right. But this is a disgusting idea to Michael Burnham, and her reaction is is what sells its its inappropriateness. Yeah, the fucking around that Lorca did on his uh, on his captain computer during the last jump uh, kind of gets explained here, but they don't they don't reconnect it, it back to that. And uh, yeah, I feel like that like that's another thing that I feel like I wish had been treated a little differently, especially because the cutscene they do show. Like there is a screen grab of the failed jump and the Lorca override, like. It's been posted. That that could have been shown as a part of the montage, and they don't. Yeah, exactly. You know, throughout this conversation, I think we're calling atten- attention to the squishiness of the way the show is is proving its points. Yeah. And my question for you is, like, is that is that satisfying? Is its intentionality a sign that it's just fucking with you and that's and that's frustrating and it makes it less fun, or is it the is it the sign of a a more elegant way to tell the story and and sort of a sophisticated, challenging way that television does TV nowadays? Maybe maybe if they were cutting back to every bit of foreshadowing, we would be criticizing this show for being for dumbs, right. So that might be a good point. I don't know. I mean, I'm definitely doing it in my head, but I, uh, I'm i also watching the episode twice and trying to watch it very carefully. So Right. Um, I want to read you something. Friend of the pod, Brandon Bird, tweeted this last night, and I thought it totally 
crystallized everything I feel about this show and its relationship to the people who hate it specifically. <laughs> Brandon Bird, uh, at Brandon underscore Bird, says, Discovery is like a novel set in the Star Trek world, cut up into parts and adapted for TV. That's why it uses literary devices like foreshadowing. And it's also why some people not used to seeing literary devices and structure on TV assume they're witnessing plot holes. Hmm. It's the first Star Trek that is not a procedural, which I think is why some fans have been frustrated by it. I think that's a really astute observation. Yeah. And I think maybe it has more to do with this episode than any other that came before. But it's the it's the series that proves that Star Trek is a place. It's a yeah. novel set in the universe. Right. You know? And, like, the movies are not are not procedurals either. Like the, you know, like my favorite uh, Star Trek movie, Undiscovered Country, is nothing like an episode of the original series, but it is set in the universe. Did you like this episode? Adam, I did not love this episode uh, for like the first 20 minutes of it. And I feel like it, it was one of those episodes that got better and better and better and was great by the end. Uh, but it kind of started in a hole, and I think that maybe that was the hole of the last episode, which I did not like that much. Um, I think it's uh, a really good episode by the end, and I appreciated it more on the second watch through. Um, I think it's also got really interesting camera work that I felt was pretty distinct from the way they've been using the camera in some of the other episodes. It it was a, like the shots are a lot more formal. It uses like canted angles and uh, extravagant camera movements a lot more right. conservatively. The series kind of needed that. It it needed to do an episode that resolved some of the things that we've been wondering in a way that moved the moved the story forward and had interesting implications for the characters. I really like that we got to spend some time with Doctor Culber and say goodbye to him because I was uh, pretty upset that he was just so unceremoniously killed. Uh, and um, yeah, I think by the end, it's uh, it really won me over this episode. And I think it's really well directed. Yeah, a Culber's transition into a spiritual figure, I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, I mean, I, like that's another thing that I really wondered, like how it works, <laughs> yeah. you know? But uh, but I'm I'm able to trust this series with something like that at this point yeah you know it does it does someone no good to get upset about something that happens in an episode because you just don't know how its true resolution is going to bear out a few episodes from then you know yeah you called attention to some fun camera treatments and i really noticed how light was used in this episode uh there were some fun underwater-like reflections through the ship, especially during the Stamets and Culber scenes inside the network that looked really beautiful. I like the episode, and I think the reason I do is, like, its brutality really makes me feel something, and it and it shakes me up every time I see it in a way that uh, I like being shaken up. And it's not it doesn't seem gratuitous. It seems like the brutality is there to, like, for story reasons, you know? It's not, yeah, it's not pornographic the way that it is in horror films. Like, it exists for a reason, and its reason is to horrify, but not in a gratuitous way. So this is one of those episodes that really made me consider the reasons why 
that works and and just how different this show is compared to others named Star Trek. I looked up the director of this episode. I think it is Hanel M. Culpepper. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing her first name right. This is an African-American female director. And uh, I think that one thing that's starting to uh, show itself about this show also is that they are doing the values of Trek behind the camera as as much as they are in front of the camera. Right. I think it's uh I think it's paying off. Yeah, I think so too. It's uh it's a show about different perspectives, isn't it? It is. Well, Adam, do you want to see if our listeners have any perspectives that they want to share in the medium of priority one messages? It's uh it's Sunday night at 3 a.m. That means it's time for perspectives. <laughs> Fulfilling WNBC's community programming requirement, perspectives. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, we have one priority one message, and it is for Ben and Adam, and it is from Chat Mom, Chat Dad, and 19 Chat Brats and Growing. <laughs> it goes like this P3. We cordially invite you to join us for FOD Chat, where we offer lessons in Canadia, French, and Gremin, Binturong Safety, Airlock and Tractor Beam Operation, Gift Blind Interpretation, Old Time Bare Nuck Memeing, Beautiful Animal Identification, Back Chat Navigation, MU Sketching, Random Force Adding, Chat Mind Melding, and of course, Cocaine. Uh, this is this. This seems to be like a social uh, hang that is happening that I'm a little bit vague on the details of. Adam, you were telling me that the uh, there's some chat somewhere that is like crowdsourcing these priority one messages at this point. Yeah, it is a massive, massive group. Uh, it's something that I've been invited to, and I and I dropped into. And I do drop into it from time to time, and it is, uh, if I were to become a more permanent member of it, uh, I think it would drive me insane. Not because (laughs) there's anything bad, but it's just, it is so much. Like, like everyone there is talking constantly, and it's impossible to stay current on. It's, It's really great. Is it a Facebook thing? Is it part of the Facebook group? It is, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm, uh, very... Uh, vaguely aware of the chat functions of Facebook, but I have never actually used them. Right. Yeah, it's all there. Well, thank you, Chat Mom, Chat Dad, and Chat Brats, uh, for that P1. If you would like to send a Priority One message, you can go to MaximumFun.org slash Jumbotron. It's a hundred bucks for a personal message and two hundred for a commercial message, and they are a great way to support the production of this program. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed, and one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted meals, and they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, 
and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Top of the morning to you. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in below-the-kilt care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality. And this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible. Drunk Shimoda. Uh, I kind of... <laughs> I kind of forgot to find one. Uh, I also just like, I don't, man, like this is another episode where it's like. The first duty of every Greatest Generation host <laughs> is to find a Shimoda band. How dare you? I know. Um, I will, here's, here's what I'll, uh, here's who I'll give it to in uh, here, here on the spot without having thought much about it. Uh, I'll give it to Culber because. Of one thing that did make me laugh a little bit in this episode, which is um, he kind of we get this kind of like horror movie trope where he's kind of uh, the 
the girl in the white dress in the hallways that uh, Stamets is not quite sure if he's even there, really, and uh, is like chasing him around in the mycelial network iteration of the of the disco. And finally, there he's in the quarters, and uh, there's like a jump scare where Culber is, <laughs> is brushing his teeth. <laughs> it's like uh, it's like the jump scare of like you know somebody like washes their face and they go down to like to like splash some water, right. and when they come back up, somebody is behind them in the mirror. But instead, it's just Culber. And he's just brushing his teeth. And he's really happy to see him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, I'm uh, pretty pleased with that Shibota I just came up with on the spot. That was a really great scene because of Anthony Rapp's very brief monologue about how his day was, mm-hmm. which is just a succession of four really awful things that is his reality. Right. And the way that he does that line read is is like he's... He, just another day at the office for him. I thought that was really great. Great work by him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my Shimoda is the guy in the throne room who witnesses the throwing star deaths of everyone. Like, he watches <laughs> eight people drop, and then and then Giorgio is like, clean this shit up, and also you get a promotion if you can keep your mouth shut. God, like, I know we've both worked jobs where uh, a promotion has often come with with a lot more work to do. Yeah. And, uh, and that's what this guy's deal is. It's like, you'd almost rather be anonymous than to be noticed enough to clean up all these bodies and also get a mayorship. <laughs> and the look on his face is just priceless. Like, really great nonverbal acting by him. Yeah. This guy and uh, the captain with the gap teeth that got, got the uh, defibrillator to the head really managed to come away unscathed from a lot of blood splatter that happened around them. <laughs> like, when Lorca is in the agonizer booth, they, like, pitched a bucket of pig blood at that at that glass door. Yeah. When the when the DNA trick took his buddy out. The, the guy with the yap teeth is standing right next to that. He cuts, camera cuts back to him. He's totally unscathed. I mean, it's hard to reset the action after you coat the set in blood. Yeah, costumers hate it when there's a blood splatter because you got to have so many extra versions of the uh, of the costume on hand. I wonder if Mirror Stamets is going to get covered in blood at some point, and that's why he's wearing that rubber. He looked real shiny in the uh, in the roll-in package for next week's episode. I also wonder if the idea that Disco Prime is like so they know they're in a place where they have to fit in. Like, they're so obsessed with fitting into the new place that they aren't really paying attention to who may be infiltrating their space. Mm -hmm. Like, they're not practicing good mirror universe hygiene, and I wonder if that's going (laughs) to bite them in the ass, right? Like, they are not watching their back door. They're not scanning their crew to see who may or may not belong there. In the way that the badge reads as not from their universe, why didn't they start scanning people to see if, if they gave off? that effect that's got to come up at some point and i think it's going to with these two stamenses that we that we vehemently disagree about yeah i feel i feel like it's also just that they haven't like i mean it's also the mirror universe is also just affecting them themselves right what did we see coming up on the next episode the next episode seems to uh 
seems to be about the formation of an uneasy alliance between Michael Burnham and the crew of the the Prime Disco and the Emperor and uh, and her peeps uh, in order to go up against uh, Lorca, who um, it looks to be uh, positioned firmly as the villain of the next episode. One thing in the uh, in the Roland package went by really quick. You might have missed it, Adam, is there's a shot of Seru getting fear ganglia on the Discovery, and, and it cuts to Michael Burnham licking her lips. <laughs> it's never going to be the same between them. <laughs> it wasn't that great to begin with, Adam. Hey, Michael, would you eat me? <laughs> I'd eat me. <laughs> I'd eat me so fucking hard. <laughs> The Greatest Discovery is a MaximumFun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison, and produced and edited by Rob Schulte. Music by Adam Ragusia. Head to MaximumFun.org to support the ongoing production of this show. Please use the hashtag GreatestGen when discussing the show on Twitter. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, and Adam is at CutForTime. And make sure to check out the Greatest Gen Reddit and Facebook groups if you're looking to continue the conversation even further. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.